This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Just a warning for Indigenous listeners, if this conversation raises anything for you, consider calling 13 Yarn, 13 76 the 24-7 National Support Line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Black Bias, an in-depth look at the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the news. A special fourth estate coming to you through the studios of 2SER and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist and broadcaster. I spent almost two decades at the ABC working across news, TV documentaries and national radio programming, amongst other things. And I'm Madeleine Heyman-Reba, a proud Gumaroy woman and Indigenous affairs journalist. I've worked in the media for 11 years across commercial, community and Indigenous media, including NITV, 10 News First Melbourne and Community Radio. Now, Maddie, we've seen and heard a lot during our time doing this job and something that we've heard time and time again is how we bring bias to our jobs when we're an Indigenous journalist working on Indigenous stories. That's right, and it's happened within the newsroom from our colleagues and from our audience. As journalists, our work is always factual and brutally honest, but it seems that speaking our truth is frowned upon across much of the industry. And that's why we decided to call this six-part series Black Bias, as a way of looking at how the media has represented our communities during major health crises, ownership of land, racism, and how they report on protests and race. While the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the news has indeed come a long way in how our communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets, unfortunately, the negative stereotypes, deficit narratives, and unethical practices continue. The nature of Indigenous media and indeed Indigenous journalism is changing. More Indigenous journalists are now working with mainstream media organisations. Fairfax Dine has an Indigenous affairs editor and more Indigenous journalists are working in print journalism than ever before. Spotify has been investing in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander podcasters and social media has given rise to platforms like IndigenousX.com.au and the Indigenous influencer on platforms like TikTok and Instagram, which is something, honestly, Maddie, I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime. While there has been a change in who is writing our stories about us, there's also been a shift in which media outlets are reporting about us and which are doing a better job than some of their contemporaries. In the Expanding Boundaries in Indigenous News, Guardian Australia 2018 to 2020, researchers looked at over a thousand articles and found that the Guardian's Indigenous Affairs coverage provided a more sustained and diverse reporting than previous studies of legacy media had found. The researchers found that The Guardian embraced knowledge of Indigenous journalists and online creators to tell stories. And it should be noted that Lorena Allam has won more Walkley Awards, the pinnacle for journalists, than any other Indigenous journalist before her. However, with this change in the Indigenous media landscape, the start of a cultural reckoning has also begun. 
This cultural reckoning also kick-started a media reckoning, which this country hadn't really seen before. And it's called out systemic and institutional racism experienced in the media, as well as the impact Indigenous journalists and journalists of colour continue to deal with even after leaving workplaces where they've experienced this. Maddie, this is something you've written about in terms of Indigenous journalists being silent, silenced and excluded. Can you tell me about your Saturday paper opinion piece? Shortly after the death of George Floyd in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement kicked off in a big way in Australia. There was suddenly a lot of interest from the media on the racism in our own backyard. I held on to some hope that things would change in the media industry. And for a short time, it felt like we were finally being listened to and our struggles being acknowledged. The op-ed I wrote for the Saturday paper came after the rallies, but when people were still interested in what black journalists had to say, and still really learning how they themselves could take action as individuals and as companies. In terms of the industry looking at the struggle black journalists face, it was only further recognized by mainstream media when former journalist Cody Bedford wrote a Twitter thread alleging bullying and severe emotional distress by a former employer that we both share, SBS. I didn't feel that her brave words were adequately addressed by SBS and it was soon pointed out on Twitter that SBS had an all-white leadership team. My piece was written out of anger and frustration and in support of Cody. And Maddie, look, that's a story I've known about before even those tweets came out and I knew exactly what Cody was talking about as Maddie, I'm sure you do as well. You know, and when I look back at that time, it was a particularly um, hard year for me, 2020. You know, by the end of that year, I'd walked away from my career at the ABC. I'd gone back to Indigenous media after being triggered by Black Lives Matter protests. And then while going through that trauma, I started to go through all the things that I dealt with in my job so I was going through the trauma of that as well and you know look I was buoyed though by that media reckoning which unfortunately seemed to have more of an impact in other parts of the world and I was following those hashtags like black in the newsroom on Twitter which shared the experiences of uh, other journalists of colour there was the resignation of BBC Radio One Extra's DJ Sideman who quit after a racial slur was used in a BBC news report. And One Extra is a BBC digital station, which plays sort of urban contemporary and black music. And he quit, you know, over this use of the, the N-word being said by a non-black journalist about a racially aggravated attack in Bristol. The BBC defended its use on air, but it said it realised it had caused offence. And in a statement released by Sideman, you know, he said that the action itself and the defence of the action felt like a slap in the face for his community. And on this occasion, he said, I just don't think I can look the other way. Then you had on the other side, you know, in another country, the Indigenous morning presenter, Christine Genier at CBC Yukon, who resigned over the underrepresentation of Indigenous and Black voices at the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And Genier also pointed to the CBC's journalist standards and practices, which are these guidelines that the CBC expects their journalists to abide by. And she called out how those standards made it difficult for her to speak out as an Indigenous woman. But she also said uh, how they'd been used in a, as a way to stop Indigenous journalists or hinder them from really telling the stories the way that they wanted to for their communities. Yeah, well, the same time that's happening overseas, back in Australia, towards the end of 2020, an organisation that I'm part of, Media Diversity Australia, uh, released a report called Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories, which revealed several shocking but also very unsurprising statistics 
one of which was that 100% of free-to-air television national news directors in Australia are white men. Over a two-week period, it also found that more than 75% of you know, people that appear on camera, presenters, commentators, and reporters were from an Anglo-Celtic background, while only 7% had either an Indigenous or non-European background. When studying SBS, the uh, umbrella channel NITV was actually left out of the study, which generated a bit of negativity from the broadcaster. However, it was purposefully done just to not allow SBS to hide behind that channel. And it's interesting, Maddie, because even with that report, I mean, the media reckoning here never really started and it lost momentum quite quickly, I thought. And, you know, I'm yet to see a full media reckoning here, which reveals the true state of what Indigenous and other journalists of colour go through when working in mainstream media organisations. Yeah, well, researchers Archie Thomas, Andrew Yakubovich and Professor Heidi Norman took a look at the history of media coverage focusing specifically on moments when Aboriginal people have claimed their rights. This was observed for the period of 1972 to 2017, and it looked at 11 case studies and 90 print news stories. The report stated that over 45 years of Aboriginal people explaining and agitating with patience and perseverance, that the media almost always failed to take Aboriginal efforts seriously. And also that the focus was often on parliamentary fracas, scandal and conflict. Now, when they compared that to black media, they used the examples of the Koori Mail and the Land Rights News, and they were able to provide an extremely nuanced and complex representation of our political demands. And then amongst this all, there's also this change in thinking, particularly around this notion of black media ethics, which Walpuri journalist Rachel Hocking wrote about in last year's When Inclusion Means Exclusion, Social Commentary and Indigenous Agency report from All Together Now. And this report looked at the positive reporting on Indigenous stories and found, not surprisingly, that a majority are still told by non-Indigenous journalists. And Hocking argues that black media ethics prioritises culturally appropriate and empowering coverage of our communities and in doing so shifts Indigenous people back to being experts and knowledge holders. And Maddie, I think this is again something that you've been thinking quite a bit about. Yeah, so I think we face some very unique challenges as Black journalists that people often forget. Um, Unlike our white counterparts, we don't get to switch off at the end of the day when we leave the office. We're Black all the time. We constantly get calls from community and family and often, you know, more often than not, they're not for a fluffy story. They're usually full of pain and despair, hoping that we can do something to bring attention to the issue. And in addition, we're constantly held to account by our family and community. We must uphold our reputations as community members and those of our families while attempting to communicate our ongoing trauma and pain to the rest of Australia. And it's interesting to note that the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991 and the report of the National Inquiry into Racist Violence the following year, they both mentioned the need to focus on developing an Indigenous-controlled media to encourage positive Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled representation, which could challenge negative stereotypes and violence. So now that we've laid out the landscape that Indigenous media has been operating in for the last couple of years, What does that mean about where Indigenous media is currently heading? James Saunders is the Chief Operating Officer of indigenousx.com.au, 
which celebrated a decade in 2022 of amplifying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and changing the journalism commentary landscape in Australia. James, what have social media and platforms like Facebook and Twitter given Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? I think that these platforms have, have given us an opportunity to change the discourse in Australia. And I think that when I think about Indigenous X and other platforms, I think there's a real kind of um, consideration around participatory citizen journalism, um, public interest journalism, and who gets to author that and who gets to be the people telling the stories. Uh, the rise of social media has allowed people to tell stories from their own communities without filter, without the middleman, and we can take it to the world so the world can actually hear what's going on in Australia. For so long, our, our images were only seen through a white lens because white people were the ones telling our stories. Um, so I feel like social media has really removed that and actually allowed us to show ourselves. And that is the good, the bad, the ugly, that is in all our, in all our entity. Um, I think that's been really important. Um, yeah, and I feel like the future for that with platforms is only um, going to be new, more exciting. Well, let's stay on that, James, because I'm imagining that you've seen a lot of change in your time. And I guess, what are you seeing in terms of Indigenous media and that rise of the Indigenous influencer? Yeah, I think what we're, what we're seeing is a, a real hunger from audiences to hear stories from Indigenous people and to hear all the stories so that, that, that you know, to see our lives that are unfiltered. Um, and, you know, platforms like TikTok and Instagram, people are curating a, a world uh, and they're allowing audiences to come in and participate um, and, to, and to listen. And I, I feel like, um, you know, the, the, the traditional media landscape at a time would only allow what their views were. If you've got an editor and a journalist and they're not Indigenous or they hold bias that is against Indigenous peoples, they're only going to filter things to their, to their own accord. So, yeah, these platforms are really shifting that narrative. Someone who's been a part of the innovation happening in the Indigenous media sector more recently is Lachlan Skinner, founder of One Mob Radio, the first Indigenous internet radio station in Australia. Now, Lucky, one thing that I was always grateful for at NITV was that after doing a traumatic story, myself and other journalists would, you know, often debrief and support each other. Why do you think having Black-owned media is important for us spiritually? I think it's all about, you know, just being able to tell our stories, um, which is something that's been made really clear today. And, um, and being around, yeah, a group of people that are willing to support you, like you said. So, yeah, for me... It would just be, um, yeah, about being held by community in, in a really trusting way and, and um, yeah, being able to tell our stories. Lockie, noting that experience that many Black journalists face in the mainstream uh, world, you know, what was at the forefront of your mind, I guess, when you were starting One Mob Radio? You know, where did that need come from for your community? Uh, so for us, it come from a place where, um, we were only doing an hour radio program on a community radio station for, for a, quite some time on and off for about 10 years. So for me, during the first wave of COVID, um, we were a little bit shocked that we weren't able to communicate with community. So, um, yeah, through that, we seen the need to be able to have a platform that was ours, that was able to connect to community um, through COVID and, and anything else that might arise. So being able to be there for our community, uh, speaking to our community in a way that they understand and, and also 
um, yeah, just having content that was really refreshing for them as an Aboriginal person. And Lockie, why did you choose internet radio? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. So when I when I first started, well, when I was back at the other community radio station, they talk, a lot of people would ask me, oh, do you have like a, a link to an online way of listening? Because I'm not going to sit in my car and listen to you. And I was like, oh, thanks. But at the same time, it's just like, um, yeah, it, I, I was noticing that was more common. And so there was one day I was just like, well, what am I doing? Like, I don't need to have a fancy FM radio station when you can, when you could just look at the ways of internet and radio that way, because people talk a lot about streaming and, and stuff like that. And I was like, I'm sure there'd be a platform for internet radio out there somewhere. So did some searching and um, thanks to a few First Nations media platforms, they supported us in getting off the ground. James, if I come back to you, I mean, what do you think this means for the wider journalism community in terms of what that future is looking like when you look at people like Lockie and what they're doing in utilising something that exists that allows communities to have access and to have a voice in a way that they might not have one more generally in the community? Yeah, I think this is like One Orb Radio is a great example of enriching our media landscape. I feel like, uh, you know, for traditional for the journalists who are currently out there working in the traditional newsrooms, this this adds to their opportunity to learn. And this is uh, the great thing about the digital era is that we're we're giving people access points to communities that they traditionally didn't have access to. So I think it's only it's a great thing. I think it's a perfect opportunity for people to to sit and listen and to be um, taken on an educational journey that they didn't get through university or through their schooling in Australia. So I'm all for it. James, have you seen kind of a rise in the amount of mob working in the media um, using podcasts to share stories? And why do you think that is? Yeah, I think um, for a, a great example of that would be Bo Spirum's Frontier Wars. Bo's you know, smashed a lot of uh, listeners and reviewers of his podcast. And I think that it's if the podcasting realm traditionally is seen as a, as a heterosexual white male space, uh, you know, if we look at the global trends. So I think Mob taking it up and wanting to, to get in there, they can they can see it's another opportunity to share stories. So many of us have an innate sense to, to, to tell stories, to educate, to inform, also just to have a good yarn. So I think the podcasting realm is just another space for us to come in and, and to disrupt. Which is interesting, um, James, because, you know, when Spotify Australia released its first podcast, um, Search Engine Sex by an Indigenous male, Rowdy Walden, was the first was the first podcast series launched. So it's interesting when you talk about that space that we are already seeing a little bit of change in terms of what these big platforms are gravitating towards. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know, there's a really concerted effort from a lot of platforms to do better, to do more, to diversify who they're platform, who they who they're giving profile to, you know, Spotify uh, recently with the Joe Rogan kind of controversy was a really great example of the platform coming so far and showing showing to do so much, but still having so much work to do and so much growth and learning to also happen as well. And Lockie, you know, if I come back to you and you know we're looking at these different platforms, I mean, um, one mob radio use social media. You have an app which 
you know, if you want to tell me a little bit about your app too, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued that for you having an app and actually having older Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening in is the way that you've gotten to a lot of uh, the, the old people in your community. Yeah, well, we have uh, an app that we have as a part of our, um, I guess, plan of or the program that we use for our radio program uh, station. And so in that, our, one of our big goals was to create an app that made it a little bit easier for our elders to navigate in, in the world of technology. So when we first launched, all we had was our internet radio stream where you'd have to go to our website and you'd have to press the button. And although that sounds very simple for us, it's not you know the easiest thing for everybody. So we wanted to provide a, a way for, for our elders because we understand that internet radio is a crazy idea for anybody, but in particular our elders as well so uh, in doing so we uh, yeah finally established an app in the middle of last year and it's been really beneficial because now we assist our elders with downloading the app so they can listen to you know me and everybody else hopefully uh, they, they'll have their grandchildren on the air with us soon and, and everything else so yeah it's just about supporting them to download the app and start to use it. And so lucky for you, I mean, knowing that the app has been so popular with, uh, I guess, a demographic, we wouldn't have thought so, but you've got that beautiful exchange of uh, that intergenerational conversation between the young people teaching their old people how to use it. But do you ever see um, the internet radio station as it currently is going away that you will rely more on social media and the app? Or do you think that internet radio is really still the way, the way forward? Uh, I think it's a nice element to have, um, and it's something that I don't, re- I haven't really thought too much about. But I think, I think we'll definitely keep it and um, allow for that um, growth across those two platforms, or those three platforms, really: social media, the app, and our internet radio stream, because it just allows for people to connect with us in many different ways, and we've always wanted um, to provide as many ways of access to our our station as possible. Yeah, it's not something we've thought about, but yeah, I would imagine would keep um, going strong in that space. And so, Lucky, I guess, you know, because you're the first to do this, have you found um, that anyone else has rung you in terms of other Indigenous communities going, hey, how do we do this? Can we can we pick your brain? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and it's been really, like, crazy to think that, you know, we're only 15 months in as I speak to you today and, and we're already having these conversations with other communities. Uh, one of the other really big conversations is about, you know, us have giving them a, a spot on our station, which is something that I think is a lot more short term and it's still allowing our communities and those communities that don't have a First Nations media platform to have a space on a, on a station that's still very new. And um, so, yeah, we've definitely had that conversation and, and uh, an opportunity for them to come onto our station and we're open to all of that. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to, and I'm happy to help those communities as well um, to see if we can get this happening in more communities. Now, I want to go back to you, James. Uh, Your, you know, Indigenous X is an example of a platform, uh, you know, an an organisation doing really well on a digital platform, but you're 10 years old this year. So what do you think will be the next interaction of digital platforms like this? What are you predicting? I think from what I can see globally around trends, video is king. 
and you know we've had many discussions internally at Indigenous X is you know our current storytelling format is 800 word articles and we're, we're missing out on audiences by not making enough video content and if you look at platforms like TikTok and with Instagram Reels and with YouTube's version of Instagram Reels there's these platforms and now it's short sharp videos and that's where I think a little bit of future of storytelling is going to lie it's the little these little bites to, to draw people's attention and that they want to know more information they click through and read and read more from a fuller article um, I think seeing the pivot to that seeing how how media organizations can do that how they can play in these spaces is really interesting I think the Guardian do that really well through TikTok um, I don't know of many others that are doing amazing with storytelling through these these apps um, but yeah, I, I definitely see it in the next 10 years is, you know, Indige Indigenous X's viability and relevance in the space is going to really rely on them, piv us pivoting to, uh, to video. Yeah. And in what ways can you make that pivot to video? Look, I think that uh, enabling your staff and the team you're working with to have the right access to um, connectivity tools to make content, um, you know, guidelines around storytelling, you know, you in a short format things can be missed, important details can be missed. Um, I've seen that a few times with different media outlets trying to get out of a fast story in a really quick punchy way and they're missing, they're missing detail. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, they'll comment on an article on, a, on the social media site without actually reading the article. They'll read the headline and they'll read a little, you know, blurb, but they won't actually click through. And so you've got to really factor it in when you're, you're doing stuff that is in a shorter form. So yeah, pivoting to that is enabling your team to have access to connectivity, the right tools to create and also a framework, a guideline of how to, how to do that in a short and succinct way. Lucky, if we talk about that future for One Mob Radio and where you guys are heading, I mean, you've already, you're in, you've sort of started that future and can you tell me what has happened more recently for what that future is looking like and the changes that One Mob Radio have just made? Yeah, for sure. So uh, we've just become our own Aboriginal corporation and in doing so, I've had a really great team of announcers that have now become our founding members and through that process we strategically looked at where we wanted to go and as a part of that it was you know radio is one aspect to something that we want to see uh, become hopefully something a little bit bigger for this area you know we're in we're right in the middle of Sydney and Brisbane and if there's anything that we can provide so we don't lose our local mob to places like that and, and start providing a platform here uh, where they can, you know, they can really explore the world of media in this space. We would love to see that because um, more often than not, we are losing mob to capital cities. So we want to continue to provide opportunity here. So yeah, we become one mob media Aboriginal corporation in March. So yeah, it's been really positive and we've had some really great response from communities. So it's really just providing, uh, not really pigeonholing ourselves as a media platform and, and being able to grow into a, a space that's more like media, not just radio. And obviously when, you know, you have a community-led black media organisation like the Courier Mail, you do a lot for the community. Can you tell me a little bit about what, one mob radio has done for your community yeah for sure so um we're always looking to get out and be a part of community events uh we're, we're running our own one at the moment it's called a one mob big breakfast and so that is based off our our big breakfast show but it's also 
when it's big, it's, you know, it's like the mob coming together, having a feed, um, you know, enjoying a bit of tucker, but also at the same time, like just enjoying, well, enjoying each other's company, but learning about those services that are out there for our community. So uh, we normally get our Aboriginal services or services that service Aboriginal people to put on a feed, provide the location, and it just really allows our mob um, a space to learn a little bit more about the services that are happening within our community and building a bit more of a profile around uh, engagement with Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people in this town. That's one of the many projects, um, but yeah, it's one of my favourite ones. And it's a really, really great idea. Thanks so much, James Saunders and Lachlan Skinner for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Whether you see it or not, Indigenous media is continuing to evolve and explore places that even mainstream media aren't completely sure of or even across. We're connected to what is happening to our Indigenous relatives over the seas, and it means we're constantly seeing how other Indigenous media internationally is trying to change the narrative, take the narrative back, and doing it in an interesting way. This has been a special episode of Fourth Estate on 2SER. Black Bias has been made possible with the amazing support of University Technology Sydney, UTS, indigenousx.com.au, and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Technical production by Marlene Even in the studios of 2SER, based on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Research by Archie Thomas and Professor Heidi Norman. If you'd like to find out more information about some of the reports and studies we've mentioned, you'll be able to find links in the episode description. I'm Rihanna Patrick. I'm Madeline Heyman-Reba, and thanks for listening to Black Bias.